listening to episode one of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen contributors, Reverend John Zering, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a good day to think about patriotism. The Reverend Dr. Eddie Cruz discuss love and action. And finally, Reverend Jared H. Huguenot share lessons in time and space when Dr. Who visits 1950s Montgomery, Alabama. But first, here's Christian Citizen Editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas. As a Baptist pastor, theologian, and civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. articulated a theology of reconciliation that remains an important resource for and challenge to the church. The process of globalization, which King discerned, has accelerated. The interrelated structure of reality has become more apparent, as has the interdependence of nations and people. Advances in communications technologies have created new possibilities for building community as well as for misunderstanding and conflict. King's theology of reconciliation can serve to mitigate misunderstanding and conflict through its affirmation that humanity is one despite its visible opposition and antagonisms. In this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith, we feature perspectives informed by the life and legacy of Dr. King, and you'll find more to read and share at christiancitizen.us. Reverend John Zaring has served United Church of Christ congregations for 22 years as a pastor in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. In Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a good day to think about patriotism, Zaring argues patriotism, as exemplified by Dr. King, thinks evaluatively about one's country in light of its best values, including the attempt to correct it when it's in error and fix it when it is broken. I like thinking about patriotism on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. King was one of our great patriots and provided leadership far ahead of his times. He came out early against the Vietnam War as an unjust, evil, and futile war. That was well before it was popular to oppose the war and was a bold, courageous act which paved the way for others to follow. From the pulpit of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta on April 30, 1967, King delivered his famous sermon, Why I Am Opposed to the War in Vietnam. He said, But the day day has has passed for superficial patriotism. He who lives with untruth lives in spiritual slavery. Freedom is still the bonus we receive for knowing the truth. Ye shall know the truth, says Jesus, and the truth shall set you free. I do not care for thinking about patriotism on the national holidays. Patriotism, as exemplified by Dr. King, thinks evaluatively about one's country in light of its best values, including the attempt to correct it when it's in error and fix it when it is broken. Yet especially on our national patriotic holidays, too often our churches promote nationalism, the uncritical support of one's nation, regardless of its moral, truthful, or political bearing. I attended a worship service on a national holiday. The service, which was designed to lead worshipers into an encounter with the divine, began with the presentation of the American flag by the scouts, followed by a parade of men in old military uniforms. 
Next came the Pledge of Allegiance, standing up. This scene likely plays out in congregations throughout the land. The pastor did his best to encourage critical thinking, but this kind of nationalism makes it feel unpatriotic to question, to consider alternative ways of thinking, or to criticize these practices. (laughs) Careful here. I can imagine my beloved mother saying, Johnny, we must honor our boys who sacrificed so much for the country. She would have stood for the pledge and belted out the national hymns with pride and gusto. And yet, she raised me in an American Baptist church less than six miles from where Martin Luther King Jr. attended Crozier Theological Seminary. Some of my pastors were his classmates. I was raised in that church to think globally, for God so loved the world. Cosmos is the Greek word in the verse, God so loved the cosmos. I grew up hearing, thou shalt not kill, and love your enemies, and blessed are the peacemakers. The church taught me to think, to consider implications of attitudes and behavior, and to recognize that, like the disciples, there is a time to obey God rather than humans, even if that calls for civil disobedience. This church modeled that Christians are to be champions for the human race, without borders, boundaries, or walls. Whether from across the avenue or from Central America, the one in need was my neighbor. I knew that part of my allowance went to helping people in faraway countries. Essayist William Hazlitt said, The love of liberty is the love of others. The love of power is the love of ourselves. Because we were raised to love others, all others, the consequence is that we learned to love liberty. Two words summarize how I was raised in that American Baptist church. It was centered upon love and forgiveness. In the midst of the Vietnam War, I received a piece of mail from the Selective Service System that began with the word greetings, along with an invitation to report for a physical to prepare to be drafted into the Army. Because I was raised to think critically and evaluatively, I tried to reconcile the Christian teachings of my church with the potential of being drafted. If I stepped across the line, I would be required to carry out orders, even if that meant to kill another human being. What if I was ordered to kill another human, a husband or a father, for a war which one of my heroes called unjust, evil, and futile? It did not reconcile. And so I decided I would reject the invitation and pay whatever price was needed. I was prepared to become a conscientious objector, and then a new lottery of draft numbers was initiated, and I ended up with a high number. So I was excused, but I would have been ready and willing to pay the price. Decades later, Martin Luther King Jr.'s words still deeply resonate with me. The day has passed for superficial patriotism. He who lives with untruth lives in spiritual slavery. Please, please, please let our nation think critically and evaluatively about the growing number of untruths proffered in our time, even from the highest offices. If we do not, we shall be bound in spiritual slavery. When I attend a service designed for the worship of God, and instead I experience an exercise in the deification of nationalism, I am distraught and cannot help but think that spiritual slavery is occurring before our eyes. 
I want to be patriotic. I listen to the sound of music's Edelweiss, Edelweiss, bless my homeland forever, and I long to sing that about the United States of America. I love the patriotism of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, when a whole nation is roaring patriotism at the top of its voice, I am fain to explore the cleanliness of its hands and the purity of its heart. And I dislike the patriotism described by George Bernard Shaw. Patriotism, he said, is fundamentally a conviction that a particular country is superior to all others because you were born in it. I can easily reconcile my church's teachings with a patriotic voice from Malcolm Little, also known as Malcolm X. He said, you're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong, no matter who does it or who says it. There are some wrong things going on in our country today, inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Thinking Christians must not surrender their sense of patriotism and global agape, the Greek word for love, to an uncritical devotion to nationalism. I pretty much avoid going to church on those national patriotic holidays, which are hardly holy days. And yet, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a national holiday which I am proud to celebrate, I like to think about the best of patriotism how he was a patriot, a leader ahead of his time, and to use this day to celebrate my citizenship in the kingdom of God and in the United States of America. Reverend Dr. Eddie Cruz is Associate Director, Mission Advancement and Passionary Movement at American Baptist Home Mission Societies. In Congregational Presence, Love in Action, Cruz suggests a congregation cannot express God's love without being involved and present. The very act of love compels us to connect with people and walk the journey together. There was a popular song in 2003 by the rap group Black Eyed Peas entitled, Where is the Love? In the first stanza, the lyrics say people killing, people dying, children hurting, I hear them crying, can you practice what you preach? Today's culture is asking the church, can you practice what you preach? One of the main messages of the gospel is the love of Christ. In scripture, we hear Jesus say, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, John 13, 35. The church cannot go far in its preaching, teaching, and practice without considering that we are a people loved by God and sent to love our community. Many churches throughout North America are seeking ways to recontextualize the gospel and bring vitality to their local ministries. While a great deal of exchange occurs about the missional church effort, biblical concepts such as Christ's love, hope, and healing need to be contextually practiced to become effective and impact our neighborhoods. I have heard many pastors ask how they can spark excitement in their congregations when many of the members are really spectators. They are not excited about getting involved. It seems that the wonderful work of mission and ministry does not inspire people as it should. Maybe rephrasing the question might help. Compelled by the love of Christ, how well do we know the needs in our community? 
As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10, 7 and 8. We cannot love our neighborhoods without getting in the chaos of people's lives. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, the word neighbor is far reaching. If you are active in pursuing your own happiness, be as active and involved in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. Jesus is reframing our practices as God's people, requiring us to seek our neighbor's well-being with the same zeal and vigor as our own. This posture is an opportunity for congregations in rural and urban areas to be intentional in connecting and relating to the people in the neighborhood. As Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. I would have never visited a church if it were not for a basketball game in a local church gym in Chicago. It was there that for the first time that I sat and heard the story of Jesus during an intermission of the game. I listened to the words that Jesus loved me. I wondered why I was not lovable. However, those moments were gospel seed moments that later found root in my life. As a church, we do not need to apologize for opportunities to share the love of Christ. We are more than a social club or a Sunday morning gathering of people. Jesus told the apostles, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. John 15, 16. I believe it is essential for congregations to lean into becoming more imaginative, innovative, and Holy Spirit inspired in recontextualizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The missiologist Alan Roxborough in missional joining in the neighborhood poses important interrogations that serve as a starting point for addressing the question of mission practices, including what is God up to in our neighborhoods and communities? What is the nature of an engagement between the biblical imagination and this place where we find ourselves at this time among these people? What then will the local church look like when it responds to such questions? Ultimately, a congregation cannot express God's love without being involved and present. The very act of love compels us to connect with people and walk the journey together. We see this powerfully commanded in the great criteria found in Matthew chapter 25 and in the great commission of, in found in Matthew 28. The church should not take the missional shortcut of prepackaged tips, tricks, and tactics. Instead, seek to discern how the Holy Spirit wants your congregation to incarnate the love of Christ. What does congregational presence and love in action look like in your local community and in your context? Turn crisis into an opportunity. Reverend Jared Huguenot is the Associate Executive Minister of the American Baptist Churches of New York State. 
in Lessons in Our Time and Space. Doctor Who visits 1950s Montgomery, Alabama. Huguenot says, We need persons who can speak to the nation like Dr. King, yet we need the many individuals like Rosa Parks who work for justice and fair treatment on the ground level of our local communities even more. The BBC science fiction series Doctor Who has endured with some hiatus for over 50 years. The show's longevity is thanks in part to its ability to change, even as some of the common elements remain the same. From its beginnings in 1963 to the present, the character of the Doctor is an alien, with a great fondness for humanity, who travels in an alien time machine that somehow got stuck disguising itself as a mid-20th century British police telephone box. Another part of the series' longevity is its ability to change lead actors. When the first actor to portray the Doctor became too ill in 1966 to continue, the producers decided to gamble with the audience's knowledge that the Doctor is an alien. They came up with the idea that the Doctor can regenerate, changing appearance, and allowing a new actor to assume the title role. Inevitably, this has led to the series going through a bit of drama and dissent among its fan base. The departure of a lead actor and the start of a new lead in the role caused no end of grumbling and debate, and fans have done so for over 50 years. The reactions were particularly strong last year when incoming showrunner Chris Chibnall announced the new Doctor as the actor Jodie Whittaker, the first woman to be cast in the lead role. Changing the lead actor's gender was considered fair game in the narrative world of the show, again appealing to the alien nature of the Doctor, whose race is not like our own. Nonetheless, the real-world debate about gender was writ large in this change of actors. Can a woman take over the role long portrayed by male actors? Was this gender politics, or one step to PC? Or, as my wife said upon hearing the new Doctor was to be female, finally... Why was her casting even an issue for some fans? Shouldn't a good actor be the baseline for the casting, regardless of one's gender, race, or age? Previous actors in the role were declared miscast for being too young or too old. With the new season of Doctor Who just completed, I believe the show is in good hands. As one fan t-shirt reads, Nevertheless, she regenerated. This season, the Doctor has become more aware of the privilege she had had as, quote, a bloke for so many centuries. In the past, the Doctor could just breeze through situations, commanding immediate respect or deference. This season she did, though with some pushback painfully familiar to women who assert authority or try to get a word in edgewise. The 13th Doctor no longer gets to do the mansplaining, habits arguably of the first and the third doctors, she now has to deal with being mansplained too instead. Nevertheless, the show was still the same, yet this season reminded us it is hewing closer to the world as we know it, where sexism and misogyny are embedded in attitudes and societies, let alone time periods long past, or distressingly contemporary. At a recent public appearance, showrunner Chris Shibnall was questioned about the series' shift to talk more openly this season about social issues such as gender, race, class, etc. He responded that such a shift is a fundamental element of the show. He said, I think you want to be writing about the world that we live in. 
The show is not a standalone thing. It's a response to the times that we are living in and the world we're in. And when it comes to things that affect people's lives, I think particularly things that children and young adults are going through, that feels really important. I think the character of the doctor and her friends as well is a great conduit into discussing all of that. And then you add monsters as well. Longtime viewers of Doctor Who are accustomed to the show featuring monsters, also known as the various alien races invading Earth and creating no end of intergalactic strife. With this season's emphasis on more socially conscious storytelling, Shibnall brought up a different sort of monster. Humans who perpetuate oppressive practices, whether a matter of racism, religious exclusion, sexism, or greed. For example, one episode had the Doctor and her companions arrive in 1950s Montgomery, Alabama, where they met Rosa Parks and others involved in the lead-up to the bus boycott. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. makes a brief appearance in this episode as well. Monsters abound with no prosthetics or CGI needed. Just the depiction of racist attitudes and Jim Crow norms rampant in that place and time period. The episode Rosa is co-written by Shibnall and recent UK children's laureate and young adult fiction author Mallory Blackman. This episode has the usual elements of a time travel story, particularly the bit about ensuring history happens as it should. Wisely, Blackman and Shibnall redirect the energies of an hour-long drama to speak more perceptively to how the time period is experienced by the characters from the future, even if a relative near future of 2018. Here, the characters experience firsthand the macro-aggression of the Jim Crow South. Segregation dictates how the four time travelers can sit in a restaurant, whether or not a hotel will give them a room, and their seating sections on the public bus system. The entrenched system is all-encompassing. Two of the Doctor's companions are young adult Brits, who experience the microaggressions of the time due to being non-white themselves. They talk while hiding in an, behind an alleyway dumpster, comparing notes and reflecting on the unsettling connections of being in the textbook past and what they endure in contemporary England as people who are treated as different or not part of the dominant white or Euro or British context. Suddenly, their school lesson understanding of Rosa Parks takes on a heaviness that they had not quite learned from just reading about it. The drama of Rosa recalls Dr. King's words at the conclusion of the Montgomery boycott that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Rosa Parks seats herself where she chooses, even though the systemic racism embedded in 1950s Montgomery was robust. Determination and convictional nerves of steel broke up the Montgomery bus regulations in the long run, and we are still working at dismantling all manner of exclusive and occlusive practices in American society. As we approach the MLK holiday, the witness and legacy of the civil rights leaders cannot be kept in the past tense and treated nostalgically in our public gatherings and celebrations common this time of year. We need persons who can speak to the nation like Dr. King, yet we need the many individuals like Rosa Parks who work for justice and fair treatment on the ground level of our local communities even more. We need those who are willing to remember their history and reorient our present so that the future 
actually can be received, hopefully, without the burden of our past still unresolved. Our actions should be tied to the world that we live in, as well as the world that we need to live in. The recent season of Doctor Who illustrates how some things change and other things remain the same. We must decide what should stay the same and what must change for the common good. That concludes this pilot episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, the Reverend John Zering, the Reverend Dr. Eddie Cruz, and the Reverend Jared H. Huguenot. Additional thanks to the King Center for the recording of Martin Luther King Jr.'s April 30, 1967 sermon, Why I Am Opposed to the War in Vietnam. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. Information on additional music from this episode can be found in the show notes. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on February 12th. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. Until next time, for Curtis Ramsey Lucas, I'm Joshua Kagey. Thanks for listening.